and welcome to the Experiential Education Podcast. This week, I'm talking with Alex Moxon, founder and program director for the Howling Gibbon Outdoor Education Centre, a leading outdoor and experiential education program in rural Thailand. Alex links what children are learning in the classroom to real-world experiences and provides opportunities for growth, challenge, adventure and leadership. He also strives to link outdoor and experiential education to a wide range of sustainability themes using a systems thinking approach to empower young people with the knowledge, skills, attitudes and values needed to become change makers. Alex is also the founder of Outdoortopia, an exciting experiential education blog an online community for teachers and other educators interested in creating change makers for a sustainable future. In his spare time, he can usually be found exploring nature, reading books and travelling. It was great to chat with Alex about the work he's doing in experiential education and I'd love to have the chance one day to take part in the Elephant Rescue Service program they run as part of their service learning. Thank you for joining us today, Alex. Could you give us an overview of your background and how you ended up setting up the Howling Gibbon Outdoor Ed Program? I guess my story starts years and years ago when I joined the Scout Movement. I was just 10 years old at the time. I don't know, I suppose my parents just wanted me to, to get some outdoor experiences and have something to do outside of school. So I, I joined the Scouts, absolutely loved it from day one. We had summer camps and weekend camps and all sorts of activities going on. Probably one of the most active Scout troops in the UK, I would think. We went to Switzerland. They've even been to Japan since I've left. And so that was really, for me, the time when I kind of grew to love the outdoors and I saw the value of taking young people outdoors because I myself had those same experiences. And then eventually I went to university and I studied environmental based degree programs, geography and environmental science. But I still at that point didn't know that I wanted to be working in experiential education. I actually joined an engineering company, a large company in the UK, did a graduate scheme with them. It was in transport planning. But then the financial crisis hit in 2008, 2009, and my job was on the line. And I wasn't actually that happy happy in that role anyway. I kind of realized, you know, I need to go back to outdoor education because I know that I love it and I'm really passionate about it. And at that point, I wanted to get more qualified and develop my environmental knowledge. So I did a master's degree in environmental sciences in the UK. And not too long after that, I worked in outdoor centers and environmental education programs, one of which was in Thailand. And it was a really, really exciting program. It's called the Barge Program. They actually have an old rice barge on the river that runs through Bangkok. And from that old wooden boat, they teach environmental and sustainability education. And for me, that was a fantastic opportunity. Following that, I found an opportunity to develop my own outdoor education program with the collaboration with one of the international schools here. And then we built a program that was both environmentally and sustainable development focused but also that incorporated traditional elements of outdoor adventure, things like kayaking and rock climbing as well. Definitely. And they are really important opportunities and really enjoyable ones that just stay with you for your entire life. I can still remember camps that I did when I was at school, but 
I couldn't tell you a single lesson that I actually did at school. I have no idea what I did for years. I just, I don't know, went to school each day and then left. And But I do have really memorable moments about all of those camps and those experiences outside of school. Some of my memories are very vivid. Even when I was just 10 years old, I remember we, we built a makeshift shower on, on a camp. We didn't have good shower facilities uh, or anything like that. It was it was quite a remote camp in Scotland. And so we took some wooden pioneering poles and some ropes and we had a, a barrel. We put some holes in the barrel and built some sort of rickety structure. And then we would put warm water in that was warmed on the fire. And then we would uh, have a shower underneath that. And I was just 10 years old at that point, but I still remember that as if it was yesterday. That's really good. Problem solving out of necessity. I like it. So you're based in rural Thailand. What sort of different outdoor education programs do you run there at the Howling Gibbon Outdoor Ed School? Yeah, so we focus on three things effectively. We do outdoor adventure based learning. So as I said earlier, kayaking, rock climbing. Uh, We do lots of team building activities. We have a low ropes course and, and similar things to that. As well as that, we do environmental-based field studies and we look at sustainability. A lot of the schools and students we work with are from international schools, many of which are in Thailand. We build custom programs to their needs, so they give us the specifics of what they're looking for from a learning objective perspective, and then we build a program around that. And the final and third thing that we offer is service learning in the community. And whenever possible, we link those service programs to the sustainable development goals so that they see how it sits into the bigger picture. That makes as well the camps quite varied for us. And I think it keeps people interested, especially staff on the program. One week you might be working with elephants and the next week you might be kayaking down a river. The week after you might be collecting field data on biodiversity in the rainforest. So it's, it's, it's pretty enjoyable. That sounds like a lot of fun because sometimes you run programs and if you're running the same thing week in, week out, it can become stale. Certainly to you, even though it's new for all of the kids and all the participants, it can become quite stale for us as instructors. So that's really exciting that you have that variety. I think that's important, actually, because we have to be and remain passionate facilitators and educators. There are challenges with having such a varied program because, of course, training is more challenging. There's a lot more variation in what we're doing. And so that can have its own challenges. But I believe that's really important to actually have that variety. If you work for a program where, you know, you basically do the same activities week and week, week after week. It's very hard to stay to stay motivated in that case. I think it's a good selling point too because the schools know that you can cater for pretty much all their needs. It's more work. You have to build custom customized programs. But obviously, once you've built a few dozen programs, there's lots of similarities between the programs and you can usually take one day from that program, one day from that program, put them together. And before you know it, you've got a new camp that's suitable for their needs. So with your service learning program, it's based on the UN Sustainable Development Goals. With that, what other sort of partners do you work with and what sort of contributions can students make to the community? When we're doing service learning, to put it in the context of the Sustainable Development Goals is really important because then they can see the bigger picture. They can see the 17 goals that we need to achieve as a global community in the next few years to actually feel that they've targeted one or two of the of the goals, for example. It makes them feel good because it makes them feel like they're really working on something important. 
that's one of the reasons why we do try and link to the sustainable development goals as much as possible. And almost anything you do when you reach out to community partners can be linked back in some way to the goals. What we do is we reach out to partners. We're very, very close and we're very lucky to be on the doorstep of one of Thailand's most beautiful and largest national parks. There are lots of issues in the park in terms of conservation. They have a healthy population of Asian elephants, which is great, but they do work on efforts to conserve the elephants in the park. So we've helped building things like salt licks and doing surveys about the elephants, sometimes surveys of elephant dung, which is always interesting. This is often led by the national park rangers themselves who are actually collecting the data or doing the work anyway, but we can help them to get it done and also offer a valuable learning opportunity for the students. Other things we've done as well at the national park include tree planting. Most of Thailand has lost vast amounts of its forest cover and there are still large pockets left especially in the national parks and so it's really important that we help to conserve that and when possible plant more trees as well and so we've kind of gone into partnership with the national park as well each student could plant two or three trees and it only takes an, an hour or two go for a little hike too that's a really effective one again it links back to life on land but it also links to goal number 13 which is climate action and actually planting trees can obviously mitigate some of the impacts of climate change we've also reached out to elder care centers and other other interesting community projects where we've been able to help them plant vegetables and those kinds of things as well and we've actually been able to source the planting of seeds and so on that, that after a few weeks or months they'll be able to actually use for food and so they're the kind of projects that we've been working on that's excellent because it's the action that we put into that is the most important thing often there's so many people who want to protest and who want to jump up and down and, and say the government's not doing enough about climate change, but then they don't actually put anything into action themselves in their own lives. And I think that's really good that you're engaging with students at such a young age to not only understand the problem, but to take action and do something in regards to that problem. Environmental and sustainability awareness, while important, only gets you so far. So if you spend three days, five days, looking at all these environmental and sustainability issues, you might go away with a lot of knowledge, but unless you actually took active action in the community to tackle some of these issues, I don't think you'll have been empowered and I don't think you'll feel like a change maker. You'll, you might even go away feeling a bit deflated because the challenges are so huge and you feel powerless, which is why we think it's so important that we actually do take action. And there are real actions that we can do. You know, if we, if we have a group of, let's say, 50 students and each one of them plants one tree each that's 150 brand new trees planted on the edge of one of thailand's biggest national parks it's powerful that's big and if you do that enough times we're talking thousands of trees and that's that's a, a big impact especially at such a young age and that's why i believe this is such power so powerful in experienced education to actually take community service-based action absolutely really important part of the program Outdoor adventures form another big part of what you do. What are some of the best programs you love to run and why? 
For me, outdoor adventure is always uh, exciting and interesting. It's great. And it really connects children with nature, but from a non-academic perspective. So we're not doing a study on biodiversity or a river investigation looking at water quality. They're very academic-based activities, very valuable. But really, the best way to connect people with nature is to have adventures in nature. So for me, some of the best programs we do are ones that involve kayaking, especially if we're going to go down a river for quite some distance and we'll stop for lunch we'll stop for a swim that's always super exciting the kids love it and i'm always amazed how fast they get into kayaking with relatively little instruction because you know they may not have done this before but before long we can we can get them kayaking very well another one i always love to do is rock climbing it's obviously a classic outdoor education activity but it's a good challenge and there's lots and lots of students which they're open to the idea of it but they're apprehensive they're kind of scared maybe oh well i like heights can i do i have the strength do i have the agility to actually climb the rock so i think they often overcome a lot of barriers with rock climbing we always encourage the students to at least get harnessed up and actually have a go even if they get just two feet off the ground that's better than not trying at all but nine times out of ten they get two feet off the ground and then they think oh this is all right and then they keep going keep going until they reach the top of the wall uh, which is really really powerful from a facilitator perspective because that's what we want to see children pushing themselves in new in new interesting ways so that they grow the final one for me for outdoor adventure based learning would be bushcraft and survival skills things like building shelters learning how to light a fire. Those kinds of activities are really, really memorable, I think. They're the kind of activities that I remembered from Scouts and they're often quite social activities, which gives students a chance to be themselves in a kind of exciting new environment. Uh, so overall, they're the kind of programs I like when it's kind of varied, lots of big, interesting, exciting adventures in different capacities, getting students outside in really wild and interesting natural places. I'm not really a rock climber, but I have done it. And I remember one program that I was on that I found myself in that situation where we were climbing at the Arapiles down in Victoria. And yeah. it is an awesome place to climb. It is, it's a world-renowned spot. I was with a group of year 10 students and they were really passionate about it. And we were doing a summit. I wasn't leading, I wasn't guiding, I was just a participant. And I got to the top of this little chimney and I had to make quite a difficult move from one set of rocks to another. And I just froze on there. It's like, what am I doing here? I looked down, there's this huge drop. And it's that perceived risk just went through the roof because I knew I was strapped in. I knew if I slipped, I'd be okay. I was belayed. But it is that mindset. And once I got through that, well, I did push through it because it's like, well, I can't go back down because there's three year 10 kids below me and I, I can't really do that in front of the year 10 kids. But once I pushed through that, it was such a good feeling. And, and for me, that was a real personal achievement because I'd never really been that climber before. But when we got to the top and looking out around the area, around the Arapiles, I was so happy to have done that. And probably just on from that, is we did a really good debrief and I shared my experience in that debrief. How do you build reflective practices into your programs? In experienced education, education, as I'm sure you know, reflection is half of the puzzle, really. You have the, the actual practice or the doing, but it's, the, it's in the reflection that a lot of the lessons get learned. It's really important that we build those reflective elements into the program with effective debriefs at the end of activities, at the end of days, 
and at the end of the camp so that all those kind of pieces come together in terms of the learning and development and the growth. We like to make sure that reflective practices feature every day in some form. That can be anything from a very quick check-in with the students. So maybe we, sometimes we do this thing where we, we get them to put their kind of hands out with their thumbs out, kind of like a Roman emperor would do. And then we say, right, how's the day going so far, guys? They'll say, if you're absolutely loving it, I want you to see your thumbs right above your head. If you if it's kind of okay, keep them where they are in the middle. And if it's no good, put your thumbs right by the floor. And that's just a really quick way to check in. It's not a, an in-depth debrief, but it just kind of finds gets the kind of picture as to what people are feeling right at that moment and whether they're happy. So it ranges from everything like that to comprehensive debriefs where you know sometimes in environmental sciences we've done quite an extensive bit of data gathering and we've come across all sorts of challenges while collecting environmental data things that they weren't really expecting and so it's at that point afterwards after the doing that we can actually talk about the reflective side of things and say okay what challenges did you face how did you overcome them and what would you do differently next time and we usually give everybody a chance to offer their opinion and their feelings and thoughts on that and that's really where the real learning takes place it really consolidates the learning at that point if you didn't build in reflective practices there'd be a lot of missed opportunities absolutely and it does reinforce those powerful experiences and it can make connections between an experience and something else in that student's life as well. So there's that transferability in that debrief as well. Absolutely right. It's a case of how does this actually relate to your lives or to the real world or to something else you're doing in school, for example. So to actually make those applications beyond just the learning experience as well, I agree, that's, that's really important. What's a really cool aha moment you've seen either in a student or teacher as part of an experiential education or debrief of that experience? As an outdoor educator, you get a lot of those kind of moments where you think, wow, okay, that is yeah, incredible. An interesting thing, we were doing raft building. So we were building our own rafts in groups so that we could race those rafts in the swimming pool. And so it takes time. We use PVC plastic poles, which are air sealed airtight. We use um, barrels and ropes and so on. It takes them quite some time. We give them an opportunity to design their rafts, to learn some knots. And so one thing that was fascinating was we had a student with special education educational needs. Uh, he's on the autism spectrum and he finds it very, very difficult to work with other students in a sort of team environment. It was very difficult for him to do that and the other students also were struggling to do it too. Not least because he had a lot of ideas but some of the other students weren't taking him too seriously and so he actually sort of requested that if he could do his own raft himself. We were already halfway through the activity so we sort of said well it'd be great if you could just continue with your own group. You're doing really well so far. You know your group's doing well, you've got a good raft coming. And he said, no, I, I need my own space here. I, 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 need a, I need to do my own raft. And so we gave him that opportunity. We said, okay, you, but you've not got much time now. So you need to think really carefully about how you're going to do this. But he grabbed his, his materials. He knew exactly what he wanted to build. He must have had it in his head and he just got on with it. And he worked really, really hard. It was a simple design, but a very effective design. And we were quite astonished. We were like, wow, this is very good going for just one person. Eventually it was time to take a step back and, and race the rafts. So obviously he he was in his own team. It was a relay race, so you only needed one person actually on the raft. 
and you would do laps of the pool. So he just said, okay, well, I'll just do all the laps and there's no need for a relay for me. Obviously, I've already got one, one team member. And we couldn't believe it because he was really, really good. He beat every single team, hands down, and built the most stable raft in half the time with just one person. And what was powerful for me in that experience was in the classroom, a lot of the students, they just find it hard to interact with him. He finds it very hard to engage with the academic side of things. But in an activity like this, which was hands-on and practical, he absolutely killed it and he did a great job. And it's just a reminder that, you know, in outdoor education and experience education, you can often flip the classroom hierarchy so that the students in the class that are straight A students aren't always the students that excel in outdoor learning. And so to watch this student do so well in that activity was just mind-blowing. So that was really powerful aha moment for me. And I just thought, wow, what a guy. That's phenomenal because it's one of those things where we're in a really good position as outdoor educators to find all of those different ways in which people learn. They're in that experiential moment and you see things so much more clearly than if someone's sitting at a desk or writing in a book or tapping away at a computer. You don't see all of those really unique things about a person until they're deep into an activity. I think that's fantastic. You've suddenly seen how this student really engages with an activity and then really engages in something that obviously he has loved. Yeah, his teacher was astonished too. She just said, wow, I wouldn't have said that he would have excelled in this activity based on what I've seen in the classroom. And I just thought to myself, wow, this is the power of outdoor education because it gives students opportunities to learn in different ways that they never get a chance to do. And by flipping that classroom hierarchy, some of the highly academic straight A students also see value in some of the other students which do find the academic side more difficult. And that can only be a good thing when they get back in the classroom. It is indeed, because then people really understand the value of teams and the different skills that people bring to a team to achieve a shared goal. I'll just skip to something completely, not completely different. I'm hearing a lot of really interesting birds in the background where you are. Can you tell me a little bit about, a little bit more about the jungle that's nearby and some of the animals and some of the plants that you would see if you're taking a group out for a bushwalk in the, or a jungle walk, so to speak, in your area. Yeah, it's a subtropical rainforest near us in terms of the national park. Actually, where I live right now, it's very rural. There's lots of farms. And so there's plant fields and there's cattle and so on. But inside the park, it's very much a massive forest. And so when we take students in there, it's very exciting because there's loads of interesting opportunities to see some exciting wildlife. When you go into the forest, sometimes students feel a little bit disappointed because they're they're expecting incredible wildlife. And sometimes it doesn't actually materialize because, you know, if we're walking through the forest with in groups of 10 students and they're all chatting and they're talking to the ranger who's who's kind of leading them, obviously that's difficult. So obviously we try and keep getting them to keep the voices down. But that aside, one of the best things we do is we do things like animal tracking and looking at signs of animals too. I mean, sometimes we just stumble across a herd of elephants in the distance and that is obviously hands down incredible but that doesn't actually happen that often however we often see elephant dung on the trail we see elephant footprints we see where they've been or where they would maybe could be going and so sometimes those discussions and that kind of observation is really powerful too and also we can see what kind of animals are in the area there's asian wild hunting dogs for example 
which have pretty distinctive scat, which is it's kind of, I don't know, some of the kids kind of find it gross to be looking at uh, animal poo, but it's really interesting because we can kind of see what they eat and what kind of animals were in the region and the area. That's some of the things that we do do. Right now, inside the National Park, there's not been a tiger sighting for at least 15 years for various reasons. Further away from us, there's another forest complex not too far from the border with Cambodia that does still have a healthy population of tigers. That's something else to, to think about because we can often ask the students, why are there no tigers here, do you think? What is going on? And it leads to some great discussions. One of my favourite things, and it's the reason we called it the Howling Gibbon Outdoor Education Centre, is because we always, at least hear, but often see gibbons in the trees. And that's a great experience. That'd be really cool. I'd love to see that. We don't see anything like that. All we see is kangaroos here. Tons and tons of roos, but never anything like that. So tell me a little bit about a gibbon. What is exciting about that? Well, firstly, gibbons are arboreal, which means they only stay up in the trees. So unlike macaques, which are another kind of, they're a monkey, gibbons are actually apes, but they stay up in the trees. They are unbelievably effective at getting between the branches. So they have very, very long arms and they can speed through the trees really, really fast. They live in big groups. They often feed together and often very early in the morning and at dusk, they actually call out to each other through the canopy. Uh, The sound is incredible. It's kind of like, but it it goes right through the forest. I mean, you could be still three or four kilometers away from the actual Gibbon family, but you can still hear them. And it was one of the most memorable parts of visiting this park for me. You know, I went for a camping trip in there uh, for a couple of days and I was woken up by Gibbons pretty much every morning. And I just thought, wow, that is amazing. We don't always see them. Sometimes we just hear them, but even just to hear them and just to know they're there is uh, the kids, the kids get excited too. Absolutely. So where do you see outdoor education in the overall scheme of a student's education today? That's a great question. I see outdoor education as an extremely valuable part of a child's learning. I think it needs to be as important as classroom-based learning. I think students need a huge amount of outdoor learning opportunities to develop the skills and the kind of growth mindset needed for when they reach adulthood and then they can hopefully have their skills for life. I think there's actually a movement towards a fuller appreciation of outdoor education now. I think we're on the cusp of something big here. I think schools and uh, educational authorities are starting to see, wow, actually this is valuable stuff. And for me, it's all about building a sustainable future. And I think outdoor education is a perfect tool for that. The work you are doing is fantastic, Alex. I am very jealous of the jungle that you have right on your doorstep. Thank you so much for your time today. It has been wonderful chatting with you about the awesome programs that you're running with the Howling Gibbon Outdoor Education School. Thanks, David. Can I just as well say, yeah, thanks very much for inviting me to talk this morning. I have a blog and kind of online community for outdoor learning and sustainability called Outdoortopia. It's outdoortopia.org. I'm building online courses and resources you might like to see. So thanks very much. Fantastic. I will share those links in the show notes. And that is going to be a fantastic resource for our listeners. So thanks again, Alex, and look forward to seeing how you develop and grow the program over the next few years. Thanks, David. Good stuff. Good to hear from you. That was Alex Moxon, founder and program director for the Howling Gibbon Outdoor Ed Centre in Thailand. 
For more information on the programs Alex runs, including his community and blog website, Outdoortopia, check out the links in the show notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a nice review and give us a rating. It helps others to find the podcast and helps us to review and improve the show as well. If you'd like to get in touch or want to let us know about an experiential education program you're running, please drop us a line through the website. Join us again next week as we explore more great stories and ideas for experiential education.